from the Sermon on the Mount, we emphasized the true nature of law contra the Pharisees, against what the religious leaders and the Pharisees were teaching the law was. Jesus comes in and says, no, uh, the law is something else. You've lost sight of it. And the way Jesus ends that great sermon on law, the most uh, anti-seeker-sensitive sermon of all time, is by saying what? Be Be perfect, therefore, as your Father in heaven is perfect. Well, that's just great. But it is great because it shows us what we call the second use of the law, one of the law's critical functions, which is to show us our need for Christ, that we cannot keep this law the way it needs to be kept for salvation. Of course, we have the ability to keep the law at times and in part. That's what the kingdom disciples discussions were about. But if we're going to talk about the law in the context of salvation, the standard is perfection. We can't do it, so we need Jesus to keep the law perfectly for us. So Jesus, as the new Moses, establishes the fact that he will, if he's going to save us, be this perfect law keeper. And we know that. We say that regularly in the life of the church, that Jesus kept the law perfectly. That If I said that, that wouldn't catch anybody by surprise. But this morning, I want to take uh, some time and look at some passages and think about what we mean when we say Jesus kept the law perfectly. Because especially in the context of Matthew, where Jesus is presented constantly as being in these conflicts with the religious rulers, there seem to be passages in Matthew that put Jesus at odds with the law. Now, we just got through one of those dealing with the moral law. Jesus is not at odds with the moral law at all. He doesn't change it. He teaches what it really means. But there are other laws uh, in the New Testament and in the Old Testament that the context of these debates with the religious leaders seems to suggest Jesus didn't keep those. Jesus wasn't interested in obeying. So the two specific examples I want to look at this morning are a confrontation in Matthew 12, where Jesus and the Pharisees can Uh, confront one another over the nature of the Sabbath, and a confrontation in Matthew 15, where Jesus and the Pharisees uh, confront one another about washings and purity and what legal cleanliness looks like. Our goal this morning is to answer the question, what do we mean when we say Jesus kept the law perfectly? What, What specifically are we claiming and not claiming there? So let's start with this. Um, When we say law, (laughs) biblical law, that's a pretty big category. All the laws in the Bible, there are a lot of them, we can fit into three buckets. We say there are three types of law in the Bible. What are those types? more civil civil three types of law 
moral, civil, and ceremonial. What is the moral law? What's an example of that? Do not murder. So we could say then uh, the two and the ten, right? The moral law is love the Lord your God, don't have any other gods, and love your neighbor as yourself. And the way that those two are unpacked are in the ten, right? Love God, uh, don't uh, worship God the way God demands to be worshipped, don't abuse or misuse the name and the attributes of the Lord your God, and remember God's day and keep him holy. And then the fifth commandment is transitional. Honor your father and your mother, your father who is in heaven, and your father and mother who are here on earth. And then 6 through 10, which we talked about a lot last week, get into how we interact with one another, how we think, how we speak, how we behave on a moral level. So when we say moral law, we're talking about the two and the ten. Um, what do we know about these laws? Where do these laws come from, so to speak? They come, obviously, from God gave them to us. But how did God come up with these? Right. These are who God is. These laws reflect the nature and the character of God. God is single-minded in glorifying himself. Therefore, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Don't worship any other gods, right? God honors his own name and his reputation. God uh, is the one who established a six-in-one pattern of work and of rest and of worship. So as you look at the two and the ten, what you're seeing is an, out, uh, an outworking of the nature and the character of God. These laws exist because this is how God exists, is within the, the way that these laws describe. So if that's the case, what can what does that tell us now about those laws, moral law, and what does that tell us about the future of the moral law? It won't change because God won't change. It won't change. And we would say it can't change because God won't change. And if these laws are the expression of God's own nature and character, then these laws have been the same forever. These laws did not begin with the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments were an articulation of the laws that have existed from the foundation of the universe. Because this is how God is and will be. And so these laws will exist in the new heavens and the new earth. These laws will exist everywhere that God exists because they are the reflection of him, and they won't change. Everybody clear on that and why that is? So will there be law in the new heavens and the new earth? Yes, even if God did entirely away with these, which I don't think he will, but even if he did away entirely with these, there will always be the moral law, and it will not change. All right? Civil law. What are examples, or what's an example of a civil law? Like with divorce and, you know, like all those. Yeah, we'll call it the mechanics uh, of divorce, 
right? Because marriage itself is part of a, a moral law. But the thing we read last week about the certificate process and the having the right, right? Um, civil laws are laws for a particular people in time. The Israelites had laws that were for Israel in the time when God gave them to them. We have laws in the United States of America. Are people in Spain bound by our laws? No. Are people 600 years ago bound by our laws? No. <laughs> right? Our country's not that old yet. Uh, uh, will people 600 years from now be bound by those laws? Only if they are in the United States of America, and those are still the laws of the United States of America. Civil laws are laws for a particular people in time. Everybody get civil law? So when you read the Old Testament, laws, is the easy way to identify some of these are laws that talk about punishments. If you do so-and-so, then so-and-so is to be stoned. There's, there's two halves to that. <laughs> there's the law that says this is illegal, that may or may not be based on a moral law. So Israel had a civil law that said um, adulterers are stoned. The don't commit adultery part is a moral law. It's rearticulated as a civil law. This is the rule for the people of Israel. And if you disobey, we will stone you until you are dead. That's now a civil law. So you see why this distinction gets important, because sometimes you have conversations with people who are hostile to Christianity or indifferent to Christianity, and one of the things that they want to, they think it's a real gotcha when they say to you, you claim to be a Christian, but here's all these laws in the Old Testament that you don't follow. And I mean, our response to that should be something along the lines of, well, you claim to be an American citizen, but you're not following the laws of Portugal. And they say, well, that doesn't make any sense. And you say, well, neither does what you just said. Right? We can go through the Old Testament, and there are certainly laws that I am under. And those laws we have a category for. But there are also laws given for a particular people in a particular place and time. And just because it says in the Old Testament something is a law, that doesn't mean that that's a law for me, a 21st century Christian in the United States of America. It might be. I can't just dismiss it because it's in the Old Testament, but i got to figure out what kind of law is this? What is the context in which it was given? To whom was it given? Was it given to a follower of God? Okay, I'm one of those. Or was it given to an Israelite in the ancient Near East in the 3rd century BC? I am not one of those. That law is not given to me. So civil laws, particular people for particular time. So that means very much will change. Right? Now, it's not that civil laws have no basis in moral law. I used the example of adultery before where you had a one-to-one -one correspondence. The best civil laws are based on moral law because then we can be sure that it is that our distinction of right and wrong is correct. We can be completely 100% certain that when the government says in its civil law, this is bad, don't do it, 
if that is itself a moral law directly connected to one, we're, we're confident. But what about speed limits? Do we need speed limits? Yes, we, some of you need speed limits. <laughs> Would we say that speed limits are based on a moral law? No. They're connected to the sixth commandment, thou shalt not murder. They're connected to the preservation of life, the promoting safety. Um, but it's so far removed from that, you cannot make a moral argument for 45 miles an hour versus 75 miles an hour. There's no moral argument there. And so as civilizations change, our cars get safer, safety equipment's better, more people have driver's licenses that have taken class. Then we can say, we're going to raise the speed limit five miles an hour on the interstate. Good morning. It's back through that hall. Uh, we're going to raise the speed limit five miles because it's not a moral issue. Everybody see that? That is a civil law. Then we also have ceremonial laws. And ceremonial laws are particular expressions of religious practice. What do I mean by that? Well, all the laws in the Old Testament about sacrifice, right? Those are particular expressions of religious practice. The laws in the Old Testament about washings that we'll get into in a minute, about ritual purity, even sometimes expressions of moral law. There's one in the Ten Commandments that we've talked about several times over the last month. What is a ceremonial law mixed in with the Ten Commandments? That the six-in-one pattern of Sabbath, the rest day falls on Saturday. Right? That's a particular expression. And I'll talk more about that later. But we have a moral commandment, which is a six-in-one pattern. There is a day set aside for the Lord that is a day of God's holy rest that we enter into, and that's going to change the way we live on that day compared with the others. That's the moral commandment. When do you do that? Well, that's a ceremonial. So because these are particular expressions, they too will change, but sometimes they'll change in, um, in a unique way, which is they will be fulfilled. Ceremonial laws are, are because they're about religious practice, God has a, a teaching purpose in them. They exist to show us something, to teach us something. Moral laws exist because that's the world in which God exists, and we should align ourselves with that world. Civil laws exist because we live in a sin-filled world, a world after the fall, and God has to put in governments as a mechanism to restrain sin in society. And so those laws exist to take those moral laws and enforce and apply them amongst the people. But ceremonial laws don't have to exist, per se. They exist because God wants to teach his people something. Something about himself, something about themselves, something about worship. God wants to teach his people something. And that's why ceremonial laws exist. 
And the pattern that we're going to see that I want to go ahead and establish now as we go through these two examples is the, where the Pharisees get hung up is that these laws exist for the sake of the law. But that's what a moral law is. The moral law exists for the sake of the law because that's a reflection of God's character. You can't say ceremonial laws exist for the sake of the ceremonial laws. They exist for a purpose, which is God's desire to teach us something. And those laws can be not just changed. They can be fulfilled when God has either taught us all he's going to teach on that subject, or there becomes a better way to teach it. That in God's economy, we've graduated from first grade math, and we're now ready for calculus. And the first grade math is going to go away. We don't need to be taught through that lens anymore. God has a better lens through which he can teach us. All right, is that... Is the distinction between the three laws clear? Because I think that's valuable, not just for today's discussion, but as you interact with people who are on the edges of Christianity and want to complain that you claim to be a Christian, but you don't do all these crazy things the Old Testament says, now, now you have your, if they're willing to listen, the way to explain. Now, that's a peculiar thing. <laughs> You're asking me to obey laws that never apply to me. And the Bible itself says never applied to me. Questions about that? Um, what, how do you, what's the response to, so, you know, okay, God doesn't change. I, I don't really, you know, if you read in the Old Testament, there's like list after list of you do this, you get stoned. You do this, you get stoned. How, how do you answer the, well, if God sure seemed really mean at that time, you know, if this God doesn't. Can I answer that in the sermon? Because it's a great question, and it's a big part of the sermon. Um, the short answer is, we don't think sin is that bad. God looks mean because we think sin is not that bad. And if we actually saw sin the way God saw sin, what we would be astonished by, taken aback by, is that he didn't wipe us all out, is that Noah survived the flood. That, that's what should blow our minds, that any of us live. Think about yourself, just yourself. Y'all aren't Hitler. You aren't that level of evil. But think about yourself in the most evil moment you can recall of your own life, when you were the most filled with contempt for another human being that God had made. When, if it was your world, fire would be coming out, Trogdor burning the thing down, right? Think about yourself in that moment. And you're still here. Don't tell me God's mean. Don't tell me he's mean. That's the short answer. Yeah. Whether it's the Pharisees then or like the law followers now, like if there is a better way, which obviously Jesus was the better way, like why do they stay stuck in the just the law if they're not looking for the better way? I mean, wouldn't the Jews even have prepared to look for the better way? Yeah. So two reasons, and I'll say several times in this. Whenever we can, we should assume positive intent. We should assume they're not trying to be malicious. So for the Pharisees that we assume positive intent, change is hard. If for 2,000 years your righteousness before God was built on this one standard, and then the Messiah comes along and says, new standard, not here, but here, that would be really, really hard. And then 
if you don't assume positive intent, if you if you look into the heart, they can't be justified by Jesus' standard. That's part of the point. They can be justified by their own standard. Which would you prefer? Yeah, I like the one that keeps me alive. <laughs> that's, that's the way I roll. All right. Uh, so it's interesting that Jesus, he's in these ongoing debates with the Pharisees about law and about righteousness. What was the crime that Jesus, for which Jesus was crucified? The Roman government had Jesus put to death. What was the crime for which Jesus was crucified? Mm-mm, the Roman government doesn't care about that. Insurrection. Insurrection. That Jesus himself was against the laws of the Roman government in such a way that Jesus sought to overthrow the Roman government. So the crime that Jesus was crucified for was that he was the chief among lawbreakers. That his desire was to upend the law. And so that's what the Roman government killed him for. We know that's not true. His trial was a sham. Jesus was not guilty of that. And then y'all said it a minute ago, what was the real reason Jesus was killed? Why did the Jewish leaders want him killed? Because he was upending this. <laughs> because they were claiming that he was this huge ceremonial lawbreaker, so much so as to be a blasphemer to have claimed that he was God. And so uh, his interactions about, by the way, that's, if, again, if we assume positive intent for the Pharisees for a minute, if that were true, the religious leaders had lost sight of the truth. And if you believe that Jesus is this dangerous, heretical teacher telling people to overthrow the righteousness that comes from God and to follow his rules instead, you would kill him as a heretic, wouldn't you? I mean, if you assume positive intent throughout church history, I know that there were some really evil actors within the history of the church who killed people to preserve their power and uh, to to do away with enemies. But there were a lot of people in the history of the church who went along with those killings and supported those killings, not in the evil pursuit of the preservation of power, but because they were deceived that this person who was speaking truth was actually a deceiver and was dangerous. That's why heretics are killed, <laughs> is what you say is ungodly and dangerous for God's people. Uh, and so a lot of times in church history, you look at some of these killings and you say, how did, some, how did so many people go along with this? You get caught up in that, this is dangerous. This teaching is very dangerous. Uh, and that's, that's where you are. Um, so Jesus' interactions about lawbreaking, where he is the accused. With every now and then, we'll be over this. Every now and then. But what does Jesus say? Render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, right? Jesus is not going to encourage people to violate the civil law. Never does. Doesn't break it himself. The fact that we obey all civil laws that don't contradict God's law, that part doesn't go away. God is a law keeper. He causes people to be law keepers. So if the law itself is right, is lawful, not just a good idea, but not, a not an evil idea, God's people keep it. Jesus himself did that. He perfectly kept the civil law, even though that's what he was killed for, was being a civil lawbreaker. When Jesus gets in it with the Pharisees about law, 
It's over this. It's over the ceremonial laws. It's over the particular expressions of religious practice that God had given his people for one period of redemptive history, which is a good way to look at it. Civil laws exist in a little tiny scope of world history. The United States of America in the 20th century, here's the civil laws. We can write them down and keep track. And those don't apply to anybody outside of that little scope. That's the scope of those laws. Ceremonial laws exist for a period of time within redemptive history. God has a, a arc of history that transcends uh, race and country and geography and even time itself. Because God's timeline is this big redemptive arc. And ceremonial laws are for particular parts of that redemptive timeline, that redemptive arc. And that's what Jesus and the Pharisees are going to fight about so much. All right, so we got two to cover. Any questions about this in general before we look at two specifics? I thought it was more that Christ was crucified for claiming that he was the Messiah. Um, and in a way, they did not feel that he was the Messiah they were expecting. So, um, yes. Yes, but one important thing to keep in mind is the Jews, under Roman authority, didn't have the authority to kill Jesus. The Jews could want Jesus dead, they could murder him in the streets, but they could not lawfully execute him. The Roman government does not care if Jesus claims to be the Jewish Messiah. Totally uninterested. Right, and so that's why Pilate is so tormented at this fake trial of, I know this is a farce. I know this guy is, is not trying to overthrow the Roman government. When I say to him, you say that you're a king, his response is, you say that I am. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Guilty, right? So this whole thing is a farce. Um, so the Jews wanted him dead because he was dangerous, Two, and now we split. The good intention Jews, he's dangerous to the Jewish religion. He's saying things that are false, that are contrary to what our fathers have taught. The bad intention Jews, he's saying things that are a threat to our power. You're not the Messiah we want. You're not the, the Messiah we want makes us the kings of Rome. You keep rebuking us every time we say something like that. So yes, and is the answer to your question. All right, uh, let's look at Jesus and the Sabbath. Who's got Matthew 12, 1 through 8? At the time Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, his disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. This is Jesus' new normal. 
we're skipping over a bunch of chapters in Matthew from the Sermon on the Mount ending in chapter 7 to here. But the new normal for Jesus is that the Pharisees are going to follow him around. They're going to watch him. They're going to watch his disciples. And they're going to object to everything they see that they don't like. They're going to they're going to find something to complain about with what Jesus and his disciples are doing. So this text in Matthew 12 is not out of nowhere. It's in that context of the ongoing conflict that has been happening since it was established by Jesus himself in the Sermon on the Mount. So this just fits right in that vein. The Pharisees had very strict laws about Sabbath observance. The Sabbath commandment says that on the day that is the Lord's, you shall not do any work. And you, your spouse, your children, your servants, you shall not do your work on that day. That's the simplification of the commandment. Um, And what the Pharisees had done was define work, not as vocation. We all have vocations. We have vocations outside the home. Some of us have vocations inside the home. But this is our vocation. This is when I get up on a Monday, what is going to control what I do? If I don't have a vocation because I'm a billionaire on my own private island, I'm going to do anything I want to do. But the rest of us are going to have our Monday dictated by and large by what we're going to do, by our vocation. Right? That's the spirit of the fourth commandment. The Pharisees, instead of defining work as vocation, defined work as activity. So it's work to prepare a meal. It's work to gather food. It's work to travel from one place to another. It's work to do anything that isn't a biological or religious requirement. And if they could have found a way to ban biological activities, I'm confident they would have. Right? But everything that is not a biological or religious requirement is work. And again, we want to be gracious. In, if, if we make the Pharisees a punching bag, if we make them a pinata, if we make them a caricature of human beings, um, we will not learn from their mistake what we need to learn. We will not see the potential of our own hearts to do exactly what they did. So if we assume positive intent, we don't know how much of that they defined because they thought that's what the commandment really says. I'm somebody who studied Hebrew 4,000 years after the Ten Commandments were written. They're people who studied Hebrew when it was given. And then for generations after it was given. So their definitions could be better than mine, right? They could have a greater understanding of what all God intended. But somewhere along the way, we don't know if it's because that's what the requirement actually said or how much of it was something that we do know the Pharisees did a lot of, which was, if this is the law, whatever the law says, it's in this box, The law says, don't go to Walgreens. Sorry, Walgreens, but that's the law. Do not go to Walgreens. That's what the word of God says. What the Pharisees did a lot 
was they said, all right, it's really important that we keep God's law. We definitely don't want to go to Walgreens. So in order to not go to Walgreens, we're going to make a law that says, do not go to drugstores. Because if you never go to a drugstore, then we can be sure that you never went to Walgreens. See how that works? They put this extra fence around it. And again, if we assume positive intent, they're saying, look, if you never go through that fence, you never certainly break God's law. And that's what really matters, is that you don't break God's law, so we put these extra rules around it. Kind of like the extra rule of do not touch the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Aha. So, what does God say in the third commandment? Don't take the Lord's name in vain. And what is the Lord's name that he gave to them? Yahweh, I am that I am. So that's the commandment. Don't take that name in vain. So in the spirit of our Walgreens example, how do the Jews say, we will never take God's name in vain? What's the fence they build? We'll never say God's name at all. We'll just never say it. We'll make up a new name for God, and we'll use that name. We'll call him Lord, we'll call him Jehovah, but we will not call him Yahweh. Jehovah's just the vowels changed. Uh, we will not call him Yahweh, because if we never call God by his name, then we are certain we've never taken God's name in vain. You say, well, that's nuts. Well, kind of, but it's a little bit clever, right? And I, I want to point that out. It's a little bit clever. Do you want to build your own life? You know what temptations you will give into and become sin the most. We're all wired differently. We struggle with different sins. In those areas where you have the least self-restraint, the least self-control, those areas that are the most alluring to you, do you really want to just... Walk right up to the line of the law on those? That doesn't sound like wisdom. <laughs> wisdom would be, look, I'm, this behavior would be perfectly fine for somebody. It's not good for me. Because that somebody can cross this line and stop right here. But I know myself. And when I cross that line, I go right to the heart of the law. And I break it. I know myself. So I'm going to start putting some fences in my life that themselves are not law, but they're helpful boundaries for me to keep me from tumbling into that law. Right? It's good for us to talk about those. What are the things we've done in our own lives? What are the, what are the helps, the aids, the controls, the extra regulations that we put into our own lives that we find to be helpful when we're struggling with a particular sin? What we can't do is say, this is the new law that everybody should follow. That fence is what everybody should be following. And if you break the fence, you're breaking God's law. Can't do that because that's not God's law. God's law is this part. We made this. That doesn't mean this is bad. This could be super helpful. But it's not God's law. And that's what you hear 
coming up in these disputes between Jesus and the Pharisees, they have such strict requirements about Sabbath that somewhere along the line, either for good reasons or bad, their Sabbath law was no longer God's Sabbath law. Their Sabbath law was this giant box outside of it, the giant fence outside of what God had said. Um, And what happens when you do that is a law, you, you lose on both sides. Because what you get is a law that is most assuredly not God's law, all this X, right? This is not God's law. So it's unnecessarily burdensome. Not for everybody, but for a lot of us. A lot of us that don't need the extra fence, now we just have a burden. And when you focus on these, you've missed the point of that. Even if you've kept that externally, which is what we just talked about in the Sermon on the Mount, you miss the point. You miss the heart of the law, the the spirit of the law, whatever you want to call it. You miss that because you're so focused on the mechanics of this burdensome thing that is not God's law. Um, The Mishnah, which was the Jewish guide for understanding the scriptures in many ways, defined work on the Sabbath in 39 different ways. So there were 39 specific definitions of work that they got from the fourth commandment. And you look at the fourth commandment, well, it just says work. (laughs) And you got 39 layers of work. That becomes pretty burdensome. So... The ones who ban drinking and dancing because it's a slippery slope and leads to those sins, that's what they're doing. Right. A lot of people ban drinking and dancing and gambling because they're no fun and they're against fun. And they think the Bible's against fun too. Independent of whatever sins it leads to. Right? Because that is two different views. One is, I'm not saying drinking's a sin. I'm just saying it's better to not drink because where it could end up. I disagree with you. I can respect slippery slope arguments. The argument that, no, 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 the drinking itself is a sin. Not in my Bible. Because then I have a real Jesus problem. Well, that wasn't really alcohol. He was drinking. Well, it was wine, but their wine was so different than our wine. You know, their wine was like 1% alcohol. If their wine was 1% alcohol, why did Jesus waste all this time talking about drunkards not inheriting the kingdom of heaven? They would have died of water poisoning before they were drunk. Right? It's, it's nonsense. Right. And if, again, with your own life, if you're not trying to create your own righteousness by which God will be pleased and let you into his heaven. But let's, let's again, positive intent, paint the best picture. I know that my righteousness for the day of Jesus' coming is only found in Christ. Now I just want to live a life that pleases Jesus. I absolutely can take my own life and build as many fences as I want, make, make it as burdensome on myself as I want. God doesn't ask me to do that. As long as I don't lose sight of what the law is. But the moment I say, Megan, I can't believe you do that. 
And Megan says, well, wait a minute. I don't do this. Yeah, but Megan, real Christians? Yeah. Uh-huh. We have fences, much bigger fences. Um, so what does Jesus do? He, the Pharisees make this accusation, and what does Jesus do in response? Well, he begins with an appeal to David. Why would he do that? Why, when the Pharisees make this accusation, would Jesus respond immediately by quoting the Old Testament and telling a story about David? They're Pharisees. Right? They think that they're good, and David's good, and Abraham's good, and Jesus is bad. And so Jesus says, well, let's talk about David. Let's use him as an example. I'm glad you brought that up. You'll be quite familiar with this story. Uh, Craig, would you read 1 Samuel 21? This is verses 3 and 4 and 6. So there is bread that is the bread of the pre- This is important bread. This is ceremonially significant bread. You can't just eat this bread because you're hungry and you, you want food. This is bread that has been set aside in the holy place. It has a real important purpose. And so David and his men come in and David says to the priest, we're hungry, give us some bread. And the priest says, well, I don't got any bread. I mean, except that holy bread. And you know what David says? Yeah, we'll eat that. That looks good. And the priest gives them the bread. And they eat it. And the Pharisees' heads should be exploding. Because the Pharisees would have said, no, 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 no. You die of starvation before you eat that bread. That bread has a special purpose given by God. You do not. You die, the bread lives. That's what the Pharisees would have said. Um, But what the example shows is that this law-breaking, because ceremonially, that was not allowed. They were not allowed to eat that bread. That particular expression of religious practice, they were not allowed to eat the bread. So they were ceremonial law-breakers. And I put that in quotes because... The ceremonial purpose is important, but Jesus teaches it's not inviolable. The ceremony is a particular expression that God uses for a higher purpose. So you can never keep the particular expression, keep the ceremonial law, in a way that violates the higher purpose and have kept the law. It would have been law-breaking for them to not eat the bread. It would have been law-breaking for them to not violate the ceremony particular expression. Because again, I said it before and it sounded silly. What you'd be saying is the bread is more important than the human's. That's the opposite of what God's saying by the bread. The purpose of that bread is ultimately humans, God's people, are so important to God, he will be the bread of life given for them. That's the whole point of that bread. God will provide the food that his people need to survive. 
And so if you refuse to eat the bread so that the bread survives and the people die, have you kept the ceremonial law? In the most deranged way possible. <laughs> and so that's what Jesus says with this example is ceremony is purposeful. Look at the purpose. And 99 times out of 100, keeping the ceremonial law will keep the purpose. But there is something bigger than the ceremonial law, the purpose for which it exists. And in the odd scenario, like David's, where those two are in conflict, the question is, which wins? And the answer is, the principle. The principle wins more than the ceremonial law. So how does this apply to Jesus and his disciples walking through the grain fields on the Sabbath? It's the exact same thing. David and his band of merry men are hungry, going to the temple. Jesus and his band of disciples are walking through the grain fields. Jesus is doing good work on the Sabbath. He's teaching, he's preaching, he's healing, he's performing miracles. The power of God's on display. His disciples are walking with him, and they've got to get from point A to point B. But you shouldn't walk on the Sabbath. Yeah, but we're getting from point A to point B to do the work of God with the people of God. Okay, but you can't eat nothing. Wait, what? Right? Where was that ever in the commandment? Well, it wasn't. In this case, it wasn't even in the commandment. That's where these two examples diverge. Is Jesus says, look, the example of David, he really did violate the written law. He really did. But it was lawful. He needed to do that. And here's why, that that wasn't law-breaking, even though it looks like it. In Jesus' case, what he violates isn't even the written law. What he violates is some stuff that the Pharisees made up. And so he says, even if I had done what you're accusing me of, I would have been in the right. But he didn't do it. Uh, so that's score one for Jesus, that even if they're right about the behavior versus the law, they're wrong about the lawfulness. And David is the example of that. And then score two for Jesus is he didn't break the written law. He only broke the oral tradition. The ceremonial law gave license to do both, to walk through the fields and to break off heads of grain and to eat them uh, along the way. So the direct challenge to the Pharisees is this. If David wasn't condemned for breaking the ceremonial law for the sake of the principle in the time of need, how in the world can Jesus and his disciples be condemned for breaking a pharisaical addition to the law in a similar time of need? Uh, that accusation is just not going to stick. What's interesting about this is the hypocrisy of the whole thing. Is the people accusing Jesus and his disciples of this are the religious leaders and teachers who work in their vocation all Sabbath day long. All Sabbath day long, ministers are ministering, right? How do we justify ministers doing their vocation on the Sabbath day. We say, wait, do you not understand the principle of the Sabbath day? These people are leading God's people in his worship, drawing them into his presence. Obviously, you could do that on the Sabbath. And Jesus, hearing that response from the Pharisees, says, yeah. That's the, the blindness of that type of Pharisaical approach to law. Um, Jesus is the temple. His disciples are the priests. There's lots of neat analogies you could draw with this David story. Um, it's about the temple. Jesus is greater than the temple. Jesus is greater than David. Um, the priests serve the temple. His disciples are serving Jesus in that ministry. They're ministering to God, and they need to eat. That's the simple part of it. 
Um, so this is why the Pharisee system is so unhealthy. Even if you grant them good intentions at the start, we want to make sure we keep what is actually God's law. And we're going to do what it takes to make sure that we keep that. Even if you grant them those good intentions, uh, they get the law itself wrong. And this is so much of what Paul deals with in his letters in the New Testament because he's talking to Pharisees. He's talking to Judaizers. He's talking to sincere, devout Jews who are no longer under the burden of God's actual law. They now feel the burden and the constraints of the fences around that law. And Paul says, oh, it's not just these extra laws themselves that are the problem. These extra laws themselves have taught you a lie about God's law, that it's burdensome. And this is a real problem in the modern American church, is that we think the law is burdensome. And that's why you have churches that build their entire marketing message on, we're in Christ, we have freedom from the law. Right? We're under grace, not law. Why in the world would those two be enemies in any context other than salvation? They're certainly not enemies in the context of Christian living. Jesus kept the law so that we could pretend it doesn't exist and live under lawlessness? I don't, I don't think that's what Jesus said and did. Um, so this is a real challenge in the modern church, is our view of law is negative. Law is burdensome. Law tells me what I can't do. Law makes my life harder. And Jesus says, no, law's good. Law's freedom. Law is the way to walk with Christ in the abundant life and joy and righteousness. Law is good for your good. The law relieves burdens. Oh, I don't know what to do in this situation. The law tells you. The law tells you. He has shown you, oh man, what is good. Do that. And things will be better, not worse. Those extraneous rules can, not must, can become burdensome when we lose sight of the principles themselves, what the law is itself. Whenever our extraneous rules diminish the purpose of the law, we've failed. When the thing we add makes God's law less freeing, less good for us than we have failed. So I'll close with this. What's a healthy Sabbath system? Let's just look at this specific example, and then next week we'll look at uh, purity and cleanliness. What is a healthy Sabbath system based on what the law actually says? That is, if I do want to build this fence, <laughs> because that's part of the Christian life. What are the fences that I need? What are the ways that I can keep the law better? So if the law we're talking about is the fourth commandment and I want to keep the Sabbath, what is a healthy Sabbath system? Is it the Pharisees defining 39 types of work? I don't think so. But it is a thoughtful one. That is, to engage with the Sabbath practically, we've got to really think about it. The Bible gives us specific examples of people keeping Sabbath. But it gives us examples of people keeping Sabbath in the ancient Near East or in first century Rome. 
right? It gives us examples of people keeping Sabbath in a day and age that are so far removed from ours that we can glean some useful stuff from it. But I defy you to look at the first century and say, I'm going to keep Sabbath the way they kept Sabbath. What? How are you going to do that? You have all this different stuff they never had to think about. They had stuff you never had to think about. That's not going to work. You've got to be thoughtful. We can't default into anything except worship and rest because that, that is what's in the commandment. Right? We can't, there's nothing we should do on Sunday that we do just by default. We have to be thoughtful about this and why we're doing it and whether we should be doing it. Uh, a healthy, so that's part of our fence, right? Is we're just going to be thoughtful. We're not allowed to default, to stumble into Sunday activities. Um, it needs to be restful, right? I think that's clear enough from Scripture, Old and New Testament, and from the commandment itself, that the Sabbath is an entering in a, in a way, whatever that way is, it's God's people entering into God's rest. That's the whole six-in-one pattern. He created, he created, he created, he created, blah, 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 rest. And we are, in some way, entering into that. So if I look at my Sabbath, and what I see from my Sabbath day is that this thing is going to be the opposite of rest, i got to think really critically about that. Um, has to be worshipful, because it's not just rest like sleep. It's God's rest. And if I want to enter into God's rest... I need to draw near the throne of grace. I need to behold the face of God. I need to be thoughtful about the role that my relationship with God plays in that day. Not just God's the one who made the list of things I can't do, but how do I experience God today? How do I walk with God in a way that's unique to today? Because, and this will sound so terrible to some people, uh, we can talk about it later, but God himself, I'm paraphrasing, you can walk with God on Sunday in a way you don't have time for Monday through Saturday because you have a vocation. God knows you have this other stuff to do. He gave it to you. He gave it to you to do and to do with excellence. And what God is saying is he didn't have time to create the land and the seas and to have the sacred rest in a literal 24-hour day. So he saves this one day and sets it aside for just such rest. And he says that to you. I get it. You don't have time for this way of walking with me Monday through Saturday. I made the world that way. That's why I set aside this day. And so it is a unique way of walking with God. It should also be merciful because God is merciful. He gave us the day of rest out of mercy for our uh, frame. And we should be merciful on the Lord's day. We should look for opportunities to show the love and the mercy of God to others. Because, um, frankly, our problem is not that we're too strict about Sabbath keeping. I know y'all. I know myself better than I know y'all. We don't have a bunch of people. Every now and then you find a church that does, and you know that's a different pastoral challenge. But our problem is not that we're running around yelling at everybody about what they're doing on Sunday and that they're not Sunday keeping enough. Right? Our problem is uh, when we think about these fences, we feel the, the yoke of legalism starting to close in on us. And all I'm saying is, 
in our resistance to legalism, as we, as we try to shed off legalism that we've experienced, either in our past or seen in others, let's not chuck the righteousness baby with the legalism bathwater. Because there's something really good here in, in keeping of this. And without this stuff, which can become legalism, but it also can be an incredibly helpful aid to getting to the heart of why God gave us this commandment in the first place. And next week we'll talk about the same thing with purity and washings.